Good morning. I love that, that Mark pointed out that you're not as, as old as your age, you're as, as old as you feel. Mark, happy 49th birthday today. I don't know how many 49th birthdays he's had prior to this, but kudos on this one. Uh, so good morning to you all, good morning to the folks outside enjoying the beautiful weather. I've laughed at you all summer, I'm jealous of you today. Um, I want to start this morning with a little bit of, um, a little bit of a confession. So about a year and a half ago, somebody came to me at work and said, go home for two weeks and don't come back. And I thought to myself, well that's definitely not a good sign, right? And as you all know, this turned out to be a lot more than two weeks. But deep down inside, there was this little bit of guilty pleasure, right? I get to go home. I get to sleep in for the next two weeks. This isn't as bad as it may seem. That's not my confession. You all felt the exact same way. My confession is this. That when it was all over, it was five, six months later before I went back to, to work at school as a teacher, and I reflected on all of that time that I had, and I can't point at any significant spiritual growth. There was no more quiet time than, than usual. There was no more prayer time. There was no more meditation. There was no more than usual. Somehow I managed to fill up all of that time with, with something. So this week, we're going to look at Joshua chapter 5. As most of you know, we've been working through the, the book of Joshua. Um, just to catch you up, the Israelites have made it to the promised land. Scott has walked us through this the last couple of weeks as they approached uh, the Jordan River, as they crossed the Jordan River, as they've entered into the Promised Land, as they've memorialized this moment in their history. And so now they're on the other side, and we're going to take a look together at Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to kind of go through this by pieces this morning. There's a lot of small chunks in this chapter. Verse 1 tells us, Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So Scott told us how the, the waters were divided, much like the, the Nile 40 years earlier. The waters were divided, and the Israelites crossed on dry ground, about 40,000 fighting men, and then nine and a half Entire Israelite tribes crossed into uh, the promised land on dry ground. In addition to that, they just conquered this huge swath of land off to the east. There's no question why the locals would have been terrified of the Israelites. So instead of coming out and fighting, battling uh, these invaders, the Canaanites, the Amorites, they hid. They locked themselves up in these fortified cities, and they waited to see what would happen. Now, this gives the Israelites all the time in the world. 
This gives them every opportunity to strategize, to plot, to plan, to scope things out from a new perspective, to get it all figured out. Their enemies are terrified. They're on the offensive. They're camped in enemy territory. It couldn't be any better than this. So what do they do? Let's take a look at verses 2 and 3. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Heeraloth. Now I feel like I need to explain the word again in that passage. This surgery is typically a one and done kind of thing. It's a rare conversation to hear a man say, I had to get circumcised again. Third time's the charm. That's not what's going on here. Forty years ago, the Israelites left Egypt, and all the men were circumcised. This was the tradition among the Israelites. However, over the next 40 years, as they wandered in the desert, none of them circumcised their children. So now they've entered the promised land. Their children, every man from from 40 to, to infancy, is uncircumcised, and these are the men that make up the army that will will be conquering the promised land. God comes to Joseph and he says, it's time again for the Israelites to be circumcised. What seems strange to me is that God didn't seem to think about this while they were on the other side of the Jordan, away from their enemies. God didn't seem to think about this while they were out in the desert. He waits until they've crossed into enemy territory. In fact, it's the very day after they've crossed miraculously across the Jordan River and they encamped themselves. And what's the very first thing that they do? They debilitate the entire army. And there's no way they could have kept this a secret. There's absolutely no way. 40,000 men were out of commission simultaneously. Any spy, any observer had to be aware of this. Furthermore, verse 3 points out that this place is called Gibeath. Heeraloth. I've worked hard to pronounce that correctly, and I've probably not done it. This is translated hill of foreskins. Now, last week, Scott got to talk about these monuments, these stones that were set up, one for each tribe. There's something natural and beautiful and and majestically symbolic about that. Then he calls me up. He says, Mark, hill of foreskins. So I asked all the men, like he did last week, to bring these up to the front. I'm kidding. I didn't do that. That would have been inappropriate. My point is this. This is the Amorites, the Canaanites' chance. They know what's going on, but they didn't take it. My theory is they were a little weirded out. My theory is this raises the intimidation level, right? Look at what we're willing to do to ourselves. Just imagine. Bring it. That's my theory. But there are other theories. Um, The Israelites are preceded by this reputation of of miracles and, and victory. There's no question why these folks were intimidated. And this reminds me of Gideon in the book of Judges, chapter 7. God comes to Gideon, and Gideon's got the army ready for battle, and God says, okay, here's what you're going to do. You can take him into battle, except don't take those men right there. 
And this seems unwise, doesn't it? You'd want to take as many as you could, but Gideon obeys. And then God says, wait a second, now don't take them either. And God does this until the army is so small they couldn't possibly pose a threat to anybody. And then when that army wins the victory, it's a display of God's power and not Gideon's. Their very first day in enemy territory, God says, debilitate the entire army. Just go ahead and do it. They couldn't pose a threat to anybody. And yet we know how the story is going to play out through Joshua. They're going to be the victors. And this is a display of God's power, not their own. So this raises an interesting point. God calls us to be humble and to follow his leading, even when it makes no sense to us. What God is going to accomplish through you is going to be accomplished by his power and not your own. And as you read through the story of Israel, you see that they had to be reminded of that over and over and over and over again. And as all of those reminders were recorded in Scripture, we get to be reminded of that over and over and over again. We are called to be the conduits of God's work, not our own. When I was a young man, I was about 18, I was put in a situation, actually in a youth penitentiary, to share the gospel with some guys. Now, these were all my own age, so I'm talking to my peers. There's six or seven of us sitting around the table, and, man, I laid it out there as best I could, 18-year-old me. And when I was done, I said, does anybody want to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior? And one guy looked at me, and he said, I do. And I looked him straight in the eyes, and I said, really, why? Because I had done a bad job. I mean, it was as simple as that. Why in the world would anybody respond to what I had just done? And in retrospect, maybe even some at the time, I was able to recognize I was put in this position. I did what I was told to do as well as I maybe could do it. But if anything has happened here spiritually to this young man, that's the work of God and not me. What a blessing to get to be a part of that as humbling as that is. What a blessing to follow his leading and to reap the reward. Now, if you look at verse 8, it says, After the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Now, I don't remember this in my own case. I don't know how long this takes. But let's say they sat there for a week. They just entered the promised land. It's time to go to war. And they sat there for a week. Any great strategist, any general will tell you, this is time to, to plot. This is time to plan. This is a time for action, not elective surgery. This is no time to be lying around. And instead, here they were for several days of inactivity, healing, resting. They're on the verge of something great, something exciting. They're following the Lord into the promised land. This is going to be an incredibly demanding time and an incredibly rewarding time. But instead of preparing for battle, they're forced to be still and to rest. Now, several years later, generations later, the psalmist would write, this is Psalm 46. He says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
God called them to do this thing, sitting right there in the open, in enemy territory. It made no sense, but you do it. And who is your fortress but the God of Jacob? The second takeaway this morning is to be still and wait on God's timing. Even when it makes no sense. And this sounds good, I think. Right? When they told me to go home from work for two days or two weeks, I thought that sounds good. Ask any American, are you a busy person? And what are they going to tell you? I'm way too busy. Life is way too demanding. I would love to slow down. I would love to have some, some peace and quiet like this. I know I would tell you the same thing. I'm a school teacher. I'm a public servant. I've got 120 students in the classroom. I've got 30 online. I've got three children of my own. And they all have three different places to be tomorrow night, each of which demanding a parent. The math just doesn't work. I'm way too busy. But I'll tell you, when I get a chance to be still, when I get a chance to be quiet, think about the opportunities you get every day. When I climb into the car for the 15-minute ride to work, what's the first thing I do? Turn on the radio. Do we embrace the opportunity we're given? God calls us to be still and to wait on him. Before God's going to do any work at his fullest in our lives, we have to give ourselves over to him. That means following his directions, and that means working according to his timing. In verse 9, the Lord says to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal literally means rolled away. Fortunately, this is the name of the two that has stuck around. Gilgal means rolled away. God is saying, first of all, in, in regard to circumcision, this is a pretty literal sense. In regard to the Israelites themselves, he says, this represents something. I have rolled back the reproach, the shame, the embarrassment of generations in slavery in Egypt, held against your will, laboring against your will. Now, the Israelites can proudly claim what God has promised to Abraham so many generations earlier, this promised land. And I'm going to take it a step farther. I argue that God has rolled back the Israelites' history, their own story as well. He's brought them back to where the story began. He's providing them a fresh start. He points at their time in slavery and he says, that's over now. He points at their time wandering in the desert. And that's over now. And he's brought them back to the beginning. He's rolled back time in a sense. They are now standing where Abraham stood. Nearly 500 years earlier, when God said to him, look around. All the land you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And the sign of that covenant was the circumcision of Abraham and all the men in his family. The Israelites have just renewed that covenant. 
They've been reminded of God's promise and his provision, and they've marked themselves with this permanent reminder. So we too, we need to be mindful of God's purpose and God's provision. We need to remind ourselves of our first encounters with God. What was he calling us to? What were the urges he was putting in our hearts? Do we need to go back and pursue those things? Do we have continual reminders in our lives of what God has done for us? When I was in high school, God put the burden on my mother's heart to adopt. And my father was a smart enough man to recognize that a burden on his wife's heart was a burden on his heart and we're going to adopt. About three years later, they were successful and I have a brother who is very Chinese, entirely Chinese, we believe. And when they were in China at the orphanage to receive him, they were given a birth date. We have no reason to suspect this was an accurate birth date. In fact, when his voice dropped about an octave in fifth grade, we thought, maybe this is wrong. But that didn't bother mom and dad. They celebrate that day. They want to celebrate his birth. They want to celebrate the life that God has given this young man, who's not so young anymore. But anyway, the far more important celebration every single year was Adoption Day. Every year. It was a big deal, far bigger than Matthew's birthday. Now, if you look in chapter 4 of Joshua... The Israelites were called to make these these stone monuments, this permanent reminder of what happened in this place. In chapter 5, they renew the covenant that God made with Abraham through circumcision. And then it goes on. Let's take a look at verses 10 and 12. It says, On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal, on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land, and there was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate the produce of Canaan. Almost immediately after the Israelites left Egypt, 40 years ago, God stopped them. And they celebrated Passover. Almost similar to this. It's kind of an odd time to stop and do this thing. There's pressures on them. There's Pharaoh. There's Egypt. There's stuff going on. But God stops them and they celebrate Passover. And when he did that, he gave them the instructions for Passover. One of the instructions was that participants, at least male participants, needed to be circumcised, members of the Israelite community. The second instruction was, when you get to the promised land, you do this with your children every year. And this is the first time in 40 years or 39 years that the Israelites are having Passover, and they will do it every year after this to celebrate their escape from Egypt, to celebrate God's provision, and to celebrate the fulfillment of God's promise. He also stops the manna here, which I think is significant. For 40 years, they've eaten nothing but manna and quail, 
which God has brought to them on a daily basis, almost like a mother with a bottle. And they enter the promised land, and God says, this is for you. And he cuts them off, and it's time now for them to harvest from the land that he has provided them. What another great marker in their story. In the final verses of the chapter, there's yet another reminder of God's promise to them. As Joshua approaches the city of Jericho, he encounters a man. And the man is somebody special and unique. Joshua can see that. And the man explains to him that he is the um, commander of the Lord's army. And so Joshua asks, this is verse 14 and 15, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And I think he's saying two things here. One is, he's using the exact same language that God used with Moses. He's saying, do you remember the promise that I made to Moses? Do you remember how I provided for Moses, the promise that I made the Israelites, now I provided for the Israelites. I have followed through. The second thing that I think he's revealing here is that this was God. Scholars believe that this was one of the Old Testament manifestations of Jesus. This was God in the form of man. And he says, take off your sandals, the place you are standing is holy ground. Throughout this whole chapter, Joshua and the Israelites are repeatedly reminded of the promises that God made generations ago and the provisions that he's provided every single day. How often do we forget that ourselves? I'm going to leave script for just a second and tell you during that last song, I got to thinking about this. I pray for my children every day. And I get frustrated when I feel like prayers are going unanswered. I get frustrated. But then I come in here. God's promises aren't just for me and my children, but they're for generations and generations and generations and generations. Scholars date the Israelites' time in Egypt as 430 years. They wandered in the desert for 40. Before any of that began, you had Jacob and Isaac and, and Abraham who didn't live in Egypt. God made that promise to Abraham 500 years later. He has protected Abraham's children, his descendants, all the way to this point. How often do we forget that? when we get frustrated and worry about just a generation away. Um, finally, the commander of the Lord's army says something very profound. If you go back to verse 13, I skipped over this. In verse 13, when, when Joshua meets this man before he realizes who it is, he says, are you for us or for our enemies? And when God replies to him, God says, neither. I'm not for you. I'm not for them. 
I have a plan that involves you, and I want you to get on board with me. The Lord says to the leader of the Israelites, this isn't about you. This is about what God's doing, and he wants you to join him. God isn't on your side. He's not on your enemies. Rather, he wants you to be on his side. We need to remove whatever interferes in our relationship with God. The very next thing that God says to Joseph, excuse me, Joshua, is to take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. Remove what comes between you and what is holy. Circumcision, similarly, is a physical sign of obedience, of removing any barrier that comes between you and God. In the book of Romans, Paul wrote, Circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. He makes this statement later in the book of um, Colossians, and it comes from the Old Testament. You can see it in Jeremiah. You can see it in Deuteronomy. It wasn't new when Paul said it. Circumcision is circumcision of the heart. Paul says our hearts should be circumcised. We should strip away whatever interferes in our relationship with God. And then he points out that this is an act that is performed by the Spirit. Nobody circumcises themselves. This is an act performed by the Spirit of God. We need to strive to be humble and follow God's leading to be still, to know that he is God and to wait on his timing. And we need to be mindful of God's promises and of his provision. We need to set aside our worries, our distractions, our desires. We need to take them off, just like Joseph said, Joshua's sandals. We need to recognize that we are, we are holy ground, the very temple in which the Spirit resides. And then we need to let the Spirit deal with us as he sees fit, circumcising our hearts so that we can reap the great joy and the accomplishments and the rewards and the promises that he has in store for us. That the work that he does through us would glorify him and not ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to... um, to, to smile and to laugh. And I thank you for the opportunity to, to learn. Lord, I thank you um, that you've given us the, the wisdom to recognize that reading your word and taking it into the heart, Lord, requires something of us. It requires change in our lives. And I just pray, Lord, that you would empower us, each and every individual here and and us as a unit, Lord, as the church. I pray that you would empower us to move toward you so that your plan may be be amplified in its execution, Lord, that that your agenda may be amplified right here in, in the Roanoke Valley and across the country and across the world. Lord, I thank you that that 
that we are here gathered together today. And I just pray that you would, that you would work through this time, Lord, that you would work through the hearts of those that, that are here and that are listening um, at home or, or, or wherever they may be. God, I thank you for your awesome power. In Jesus' name, amen.